now we can say with confidence, you know, within the research, this is safe. Like this is not dangerous. And just five years ago, you're, you know, we're like, this can't be dangerous. Like, of course not. Right. Like there. <laughs> so, so it's been, Is um, anyone here to back me up on this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And now we have, we have examples of women like Annie Thor's daughter and Tia and these women who are, you know, not only exercising through their pregnancy, but then coming back to the sport at the highest level, which I think gives a lot of women just a lot of reassurance and peace of mind. Like, okay, if I continue doing CrossFit through my pregnancy, you know, this is probably going to be okay. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. All right. Well, welcome back to Pursuing Health. I am very excited to be here with two wonderful women, physical therapists and pelvic floor extraordinaires. We have Christina Previtt and Alexis Morgan. And we were just talking about, or I was just telling them before we pressed record that you know, pelvic floor health is a topic that is so unknown for so many people and something that's difficult to talk about. And it's something that we have not discussed here on the podcast for several years. And I know that it's an area where research and education is still has a long way to go, but has been quickly evolving and advancing. And you guys are both playing a big role in that. So I'm excited to have you on. So thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. <laughs> well, I thought I would start by introducing both of you and then maybe we can get into a little bit of your stories and how you became so passionate about this topic. So starting with Alexis, uh, I know you are a doctor of physical therapy, practicing pelvic floor, um, specifically with pelvic floor as your focus, seeing mostly women. You are a co-owner of Onward Physical Therapies in Hendersonville, Tennessee with your husband, Zach. And also a CrossFit Level 2 trainer, loves working out at CrossFit Hendersonville, and super cool that she was in the CrossFit Open 22.3 announcement, which we all watched um, on as you were on the Average Joe's team. But I know you are far from average when it comes to your athletic talents. So that was super cool to see. Very <laughs> average as I was been <laughs> solo. <laughs> Well, against, I mean, coming up, comparing your numbers against the best athletes in the world, I feel like everybody feels average, but you guys, you guys were impressive. Um, and then we have Christina Previtt, who has her master's of physiotherapy and is currently, I guess you're close, if not completed your PhD. I just finished a month ago. Just <laughs> finished. Congratulations. Oh, Thank this you. is a, a big deal. Um, and so you did that at McMaster University and are also an athlete yourself. So national level weightlifter, competed in powerlifting. Lifting, Olympic weightlifting, doing all these things during pregnancy, postpartum, um, and has also even completed the CrossFit Open twice while pregnant, which is super cool. So I know you both are a great team and power duo. You co-lead courses on pelvic PT for rehab professionals, both online and live across North America with the Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is how we first connected. And so I'm excited to dive into this topic with you. And maybe you can just start by sharing a little bit about your stories, you know, how you came to develop such an interest in this area. 
Do you want me to go first? Okay, cool. So, um, so my PhD is actually in high load resistance training for geriatric populations. So another area that I love and where I actually started within the Institute of Clinical Excellence was in geriatrics. But part of my PhD, I did this scoping review on where physical therapists could be involved in health and wellness. And the two areas that came up were around geriatrics, chronic disease management in that, you know, finding risk factors and intervening. Mm -hmm. And then the other area was in the perinatal space. And so I had a gym at the time that was kind of medically focused and we started some perinatal exercise programs. And then during one of my committee meetings, um, Dr. Stu Phillips, who was on my committee, he said, you know, if you think that it's bad in older adulthood around high load (laughs) resistance training, you should check out the literature in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of while I was pregnant with my daughter and with okay. my first pregnancy, the comments that I would get about continuing to Olympic weightlift were unbelievable. And that kind of got me to send an email out to Margie Davenport, who is in the University of Alberta doing some work in exercise and pregnancy. You know, I'm this PT, I, I'm doing my PhD, but it's in a completely separate area. <laughs> we really need to be studying this. And so it started, I call it my research side hustle on high load resistance training <laughs> during pregnancy. And so we published a cross-sectional survey on high load resistance training. I'm working on a systematic review on loads and prescriptions for resistance training during pregnancy and yikes like you know seated exercises for 16 weeks and banded exercises up to 1.8 kilos or three pounds for the prescriptions so we just have a lot of work to do and so it's really cool to be able to teach with alexis to clinicians to get this kind of out into the clinic general health space Mm -hmm. but then also be involved in generating the research and saying okay like let's kind of have some questions about this that we need to answer and just be able to help with some of that knowledge translation and bringing that from, from research to clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love so that. It, it's so fun working together. You know, we, we talk pretty much every day. Um, definitely a week won't pass where uh, we're talking to each other very regularly and uh, Christina and I, and you know, throughout the last several years, we have developed um, our online course and our live course where we're, we are teaching rehab professionals. And even in that has been, it, it's been really interesting because our thoughts have changed dramatically. And like what we, what we teach has changed so much because this evidence, again, that, that Christina really is a huge part of is, you know, it's changing Finally, we're starting to, again, thanks to Christina and and her colleagues, like get who we see in the clinic represented in the research. Um, You know, we've got our our CrossFitters finally represented. And so we're starting to just now kind of understand. But it is so fascinating because all the time we get asked questions from, you know, patients or clinicians like, well, what about this? And and what about that? And we don't have all of the answers. So a lot of times our answers will fall back to our clinical practice and what has been working for us clinically or, or what has been working, you know, for clinicians all over the country as we're kind of talking together and, and figuring this out. And then the research, you know, will catch up to us in the next several years. So it's it's an it's a really neat, you know, bi-directional relationship with with the evidence and with the clinical practice. 
I love that. And you guys really are on the forefront. And I think this is one of the exciting things about, you know, what, what CrossFit has done by bringing so many women into weightlifting. I imagine that if you looked 20 years ago, like the percentage of women involved in barbell sports was probably much lower than it is now. And so that alone, obviously we don't have as much even anecdotal data, but now that we have more women doing it, how do we actually, like like you say, get them represented in research studies? How do we learn from what they're doing, what we're seeing, what's working, what's not working. But it can be really scary when it comes to something like pregnancy because it's traditionally, you know, a, a phase of life and a a process that we are so nervous to, you know, we want to protect our our babies. We don't want to do anything wrong. So we tend to be more conservative than not. And it can be hard to get the, you know, the data to know what is actually best. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, go ahead. Christina, is is your oldest Maya, is she like four and a half, right? Just, yeah. just over four. Yeah. 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 So five years ago, uh, Christina's pregnant and like talking about her experience and I, I know Christina mentioned it, but it, it really was intense for like her putting herself out there and sharing her experience. Like mm-hmm. now, now that's like celebrated and that pendulum is really swung in the opposite direction. But just five mm-hmm. years ago, I mean, it was horrible. All of the yeah. comments, um, yeah. you know, that, that people were sharing to Christina. And I really think like, you know, when I think of a trailblazer in this space, I do think of Christina, not only in the work, but in like, you know, you're living, you were living that and you've made that so much easier for us, like coming behind, mm-hmm. um, in both of those ways. Cause now, now we can say with confidence, you know, within the research, this is safe. Like this is not dangerous. And just five years ago, you're, you know, we're like, this can't be dangerous. Like, of course not. Right. Like there. <laughs> so, so it's been, um, anyone here to back me up on this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And now we have, we have examples of women like Annie Thor's daughter and Tia and these women who are, you know, not only exercising through their pregnancy, but then coming back to the sport at the highest level, which I think gives a lot of women just a lot of reassurance and peace of mind. Like, okay, if I continue doing CrossFit through my pregnancy, you know, this is probably going to be okay. Yeah. And even like, if you look at our masters, if you look at 35 to 39, Mm. Stacey Tovar. Stacey Tovar, yeah. She said two, call it Casey was third. She's got three. Amy Morton was fourth. She has a kiddo. So that was like the podium of the moms. So so awesome. It was amazing when you start looking into those categories that you're seeing too, like not only uh, postpartum return from one child, but like also Mm -hmm. subsequent pregnancies and still seeing that amount of athleticism that's continued to be demonstrated despite the fact that, you know, life looks very different. And, you know, Ariel Lowen as a third place finisher, mm-hmm. she was another one. And, you know, Cara Saunders did the same thing. Now she's pregnant yeah. with too. So there's just so many examples in the CrossFit space mm-hmm. um, that are, you know, trying to really push away from this mm-hmm. narrative. But it's also important to acknowledge that there is high rates of pelvic floor dysfunction in CrossFitters, whether you've had kids or not. And I think that goes to like, how are we teaching women? How mm-hmm. are we having conversations about pelvic floor dysfunction? Because if we see that 40 to 50% of individuals who are lifting heavy or doing double unders are peeing and we replace peeing with pain, people would be really upset about it. 
You know, people would be that would not go over well. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't go over well. But yet, this is something that is happening, and not just in the CrossFit, powerlifting, weightlifting. We're seeing super high rates in like rhythmic Mm -hmm. gymnastics and adolescent females. Like it's Mm -hmm. causing women to leave the space or think that they cannot do this anymore, Mm -hmm. and we're not talking about it. Mm -hmm. And you know, we see eighty percent of rhythmic gymnasts and trampolinists are leaking, like that that are having children, and yet no one is talking about it. And so. The rates of pelvic floor dysfunction for athletic females in general are very high. And it it speaks to the fact that we probably have some coaching changes that need to occur. And then we need rehabilitation clinicians to be kind of well-versed in this, this type of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those numbers are... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, just <laughs> adding to that, like we have evidence showing us that almost half of those individuals don't go to the gym anymore because of their pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, so, I mean, these are big numbers. And if we look at the state of America and our health, like you can't deny that pelvic floor dysfunction is playing a role in that because mm-hmm of the fear of exercise, Mm -hmm. the fear of, you know, having the floor soaking wet while trying something new or farting, um, you know, and having an embarrassing episode like that, like, or feeling like there's heaviness and, and concerns of what that may be. Like there's so much fear around this that is keeping women out of the gym. And so, while we are really excited that there there are so many examples, we've still got so much work to do on this rehab side because so many people are experiencing these issues and they need help getting to the point where they can feel comfortable, getting to where they're not leaking, getting to where they feel safe, getting under that barbell and know like they're not going to fart or they're not going to leak. Like that's mm-hmm. so, so important. Yeah, and I think women. Right, right. Yeah, and not just women, right? So we traditionally yeah, think yeah. about women with this topic. But but I think those numbers are so important and to hear that we we always think about pregnancy and postpartum, but this is in women who aren't, you know, have never had children and their rates of, you know, like you said, having incontinence are higher than the general population. And so that tells us, like you said, there's work that needs to be done. And I think this is why the work you're doing is so important and why this time in in the world of CrossFit and barbell is so exciting because we had this huge wave of, oh my gosh, we have all these people doing, you know, high intensity functional movement and they're getting fitter and healthier and community. And overall, this is such a, a net positive. But now we get into the mess of, okay, well, what are the ways that we can further refine our process, our methodology, our coaching so that this amazing methodology and framework that works so well can be even more effective and can have fewer negative outcomes. And that comes in, you know, pelvic floor health. I'm sure it comes in all different areas of, you know, movement, injury, think about like shoulder health or other injuries that might be common. Um, And so it's a little bit uncomfortable because sometimes it's easier to ignore, just focus on the positive, but it's such important work. So what do we know so far about why these rates are so much higher in women who are doing CrossFit and lifting? Yeah. So I think what we're seeing, especially in the high intensity, high impact space is that we are pushing our bodies to a much higher, like more of an extreme, right? When you're pushing your body to the edge from an intensity perspective, eventually you will see that there will be things that break down or there's going to be a weak link. I shouldn't even say breakdown, weak link 
where, you know, some people that shows up as maybe they have a cranky shoulder or sometimes they'll, you know, have a tweak of their low back. And the more we start conceptualizing pelvic floor issues, like we would uh, a tweaked knee or some sort of tendonopathy, or you pushed a little bit too hard in the gym and now you're feeling doms of the pelvic floor, which can be that heaviness feeling. Mm-hmm. I think that takes the fear away from it. And it also makes it make more sense. In our study on pregnant moms who continue to lift heavy during their pregnancy, one of the things that people would say to me is like, well, 57% said that they had leaking postpartum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that I I conceptualize this is, well, if you had surgery, would you expect to take the sling off and you had full range of motion, you didn't ever have pain and you went back to all your activities immediately after surgery? Mm -hmm. No, you would never (laughs) say that. And yet we have this expectation of women after a baby that they're never going to leak. They're never going to feel heaviness. They're going to go back to all sexual activities pain-free. And it sets our females up for failure because they think that if there is something that happens or a symptom that comes up, that it's something that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. Where our athletes, like, you know, I kind of talk about, for example, with double unders postpartum, it's not for me about if you're going to leak. It's like, let's figure out where, because then we figure out where your thresholds are and we can work on building those thresholds. But if I never push into intensity, then I'm never going to figure out where my body's threshold is. And I think that's where we see a lot of our pelvic floor dysfunction is that, you know, our runners are trying to run further. Our trampolinists are trying to jump higher. Our, you know, CrossFitters are trying to push Fran times and 5K times and the weight on the barbell. And so they're pushing intensity in a lot of different ways. And so pelvic floor dysfunction can show up in a variety of different activities. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think that our intensities are higher. And it's more Mm -hmm. that because the pelvic floor is uniquely situated in a female pelvis compared to a male pelvis, we're just more prone based on our anatomy to exhibit pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm And kind of I what, love the way that you describe that because it it just makes me think about, you know, the argument when people say, oh, well, you know, CrossFit's dangerous or there might be, you know, more injuries. You know, we know so far from the research, there's no higher injuries in CrossFit versus other common sports. But let's say there is an injury. Like you said, it's it's because we're pushing the threshold of what our bodies are capable of, right? And so we're finding that limit and testing those boundaries in a way that's helping us to achieve incredible physical performance and metabolic health and all these other benefits. And so sometimes that's a little bit of the give and take as you're experimenting and learning and finding the the limits of your body and then how best to to prevent them. And I think so many athletes are like that. Like my husband played football in college and he used to call like Tylenol, maybe I shouldn't admit this. He used to call them like football candies because all of them were in pain and popping right. like a pain med before they had to We're get not endorsing this, by the way, but <laughs> so we're not endorsing this, by the way, but no, not at all. ideally we wouldn't, we wouldn't find the threshold that much that we need to pop Tylenol all the time. But, <laughs> you know, but, but like, you know, there's so many athletic populations yes, totally. into those and it's, it's kind of like this expectation, you know, our, yeah football players are being hit by people. I'm sure that's painful every time yes. they're in the bottom of these pileups. But but sometimes in the CrossFit space, anytime there's a negative outcome, we can really like almost like push to the organization and all these types of things. And I was like, it's kind of just, it's being an athlete. It's, it's being in sport. You're going to see these things pop up mm-hmm. and it's just the nature of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with this. So we're seeing 
kind of this this new term that is being used in the research, which, which is athletic incontinence. Mm-hmm. And so incontinence being linking, and that could be leaking, you know, urine or stool, gas, um, or fecal. But with athletic incontinence or athletic leaking, we're seeing that people are not leaking pee with coughing or laughing or sneezing like in their everyday life. The leaking is purely coming up in the gym. Mm. And so that speaks to exactly what Christina was just talking about. Like that's when that that threshold is just a heck of a lot higher with that. And so some people are like, wait a second, what's wrong with me? Like my friends leak with coughing and sneezing and I'm fine there. Like what's, what's the deal? It's only when I'm in the gym and it's just that, you know, it's that level of intensity that is so much higher in the gym and the demand on the pelvic floor is so much higher, but Mm -hmm. kind of bringing it back down, like those mechanics are all similar. We're going to treat similarly with those. It's just to what degree do we, um, do we treat it? Mm-hmm. So for people listening, let's say, you know, we've thrown, I think you've, you've already mentioned a lot of these symptoms, but it, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction might not be as clear as they, you know, gosh, my shoulder's a little sore. So for people listening, how would they know if they might be hitting that threshold or experiencing some type of pelvic floor dysfunction? What are the symptoms to look out for? Yeah. So we've kind of mentioned them in our conversations, but just to put them all together here, leaking. And as I just said, leaking pee, that can also be like farting, uh, leaking gas or leaking um, stool. So leaking in general is one big sign of pelvic floor dysfunction. Your muscles aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing there. And then another big one is feelings of heaviness. And this is like a two hour conversation in and of itself, <laughs> um, talking about heaviness, or if someone might have been diagnosed with pelvic organ prolapse, um, that is that is included in that. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I have a we have a whole lot to say about pelvic organ prolapse and the way that it's um, discussed online versus the truth of it. But yeah, so leaking and heaviness being like our two our two big ones. And then pain is the third one. Common, less common with the athletic, more common with pain with insertion or pain with sex. Um, But those are going to be your your big three. Okay. And so say you're experiencing any of these. I'm assuming the answer is go find a public floor physical therapist to figure out what the next steps are. But how do you, how do you work through that to address some of these symptoms? Yeah. So we absolutely will talk about, you know, getting to a pelvic floor physical therapist, but we also recognize that there are many situations where pelvic floor PT is not accessible for individuals. So things that you can do from a management perspective, if this is happening to you in the gym is one, we're going to try and clean up your mechanics, right? So for example, if you're peeing with jump rope or double unders, if you're really arched in this really arched position and your hands are behind you, you're not putting the muscles of your pelvic floor in the strongest position. And so if you kind of get your rib cage down over your pelvis, bring those hands in front of you, oftentimes we can increase the amount of work you can do before you start to experience those symptoms. So having a coach that's like really got eyes on you 
can be really helpful. Another thing we look at is how you're breathing and how you're bracing. So with barbell lifts, some individuals can brace by bearing down into their pelvic floor, which puts extra pressure there. So can we clean up the way that you're bracing or put you into a position that's going to put less strain on your pelvic floor and kind of distribute that strain across your entire core, which is going to be helpful. And then we try to accumulate volume below that threshold where you're experiencing symptoms to build kind of resiliency or strength within your body. And then we push into those intensities again. So those are some conservative ways that we would be getting information from your assessment as pelvic health therapists, but then also getting you doing work within the gym. These topics are exactly what we're traveling the country, teaching clinicians how to do. That way they're prepared for our CrossFit athletes. Um, This is something really unique in the world of pelvic rehab or pelvic health in that we are incorporating heavy barbell lifting. We are incorporating double unders and discussing how do we rehab someone of that higher caliper. And because it's not ever been talked about and so many internally trained clinicians don't know how to get to that next level of care when it comes to that that higher athleticism or that higher um, intensity. So with that, you know, if you're listening to this and and wondering who to go to, um, an ICE trained clinician is what we recommend. Like they've learned from us and, and are very familiar with everything that we're talking about here today. And I will fully endorse that <laughs> that I um, you know, have had other ICE faculty on the podcast in the past and you all you know do crossfit you fully understand embrace the methodology and you can work with patients with the goal of helping them to be in the gym doing what they love in a way that's you know pain free and safe and so I'm a huge fan of ice. And when I have a patient, I do telemedicine now. So usually I don't know people locally. And I love that I can just go to the website and look at your finder and find people in your area who've been trained in various specialties. So it's not just, you know, pelvic floor, but there's, as you mentioned, Christina, you're, you know, also teaching in older adults. And I know that, you know, um, Alexis, your husband, Zach specializes in spine. So there's all different areas depending on what you're looking for, which is super cool. And something to mention too, this is something I think a lot of people don't realize, but we are very effective in virtual pelvic floor therapy. Mm -hmm. Kind of surprising, you know, you would kind of think like, oh, well, they need to see my pelvic floor um, Mm -hmm. or assess it to be able to help me. But there's, there's so much of our evaluation that is asking questions and understanding your thresholds and there's a lot that can be done via telehealth. So I say that for a few reasons. One, as Christina mentioned, you know, if you are not near someone, most people are not near someone um, providing pelvic health. So, so that's a concern. And then the second reason I mention it is some people just don't want to have an internal pelvic floor exam. And I will tell my clients, we can do this a multitude of ways. I'm going to match you in your comfort level. Um, we don't have to do an internal exam to get you feeling better. 
So that is an option as well, doing virtual Mm -hmm. or just going to a person for pelvic health Mm -hmm. and not actually having that full assessment. So we really try to match it to the person in front of us and what, you know, what they need and what they value or desire. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important because I think that can be a big deterrent or what people think about when they think about pelvic floor PT and can be a big deterrent, you know, especially if they've maybe had negative experiences or it's just, you know, too much to think about. And so I I love that there's so much you can do without necessarily doing an internal exam. Yes. So I'd love to move into talking more specifically about pregnancy and postpartum, and maybe we can start with more details on the study that you did, Christina. So you've already mentioned you know, it was a, a survey study of cross people doing CrossFit and weightlifting. Um, I think you had over 600 participants, which is pretty amazing. And can you share a little bit about what some of the, you know, the big findings were, maybe some of the things that surprised you or some of the things that you expected but were validated in the study? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a cross-sectional survey of 679 women um, who had lifted more than 80% at some point in their pregnancy. So individuals who self-selected to continue heavy lifting. And what we were looking for is, well, what were some of the ways that you exercised or modified throughout your pregnancy? What were your labor and delivery outcomes? What were outcomes for babe? And can you give us a bit of information of if or how you returned to lifting postpartum? I mentioned how the state of the literature really does not have a ton of heavy lifting in pregnancy. And so I couldn't exactly do an RCT where I was like, you know, the state of the research says 10 pounds, but I'm (laughs) going to get you to deadlift 200. We had to kind of start somewhere and say, well, there's a big and growing group of individuals that are continuing to lift Mm -hmm. during their pregnancy. And so some of the things that we saw were, one, um, that individuals who continued to Valsalva or hold their breath with lifting did not have an increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction than those that didn't. Those that lifted on their back um, did supine exercise, uh, did not have any um, adverse events or any type of differences compared to those who didn't. Um, And those that continued Olympic weightlifting up until delivery did not have differences in pelvic floor dysfunction postpartum. And so these three things are kind of things that are oftentimes spoken about in pregnant exercise from coaches Mm -hmm. and therapists. Definitely the Valsalva one was the one for me that was a bias check because we tend to say, okay, well, you're pregnant, you're putting more strain on your pelvic floor. So let's try and bring that pressure gauge down. You're going to just continue to be focusing on exhaling and inhaling either on specific components of the lift or while you're lifting and never, ever hold your breath. And that wasn't, there wasn't any increased risk. So that shows that our body probably had, had been accustomed to performing Valsalva or bracing really with holding our breath. And so that extra strain of the baby growing was not more than like progressive overload that we would experience Mm -hmm. when we were gradually adding weight to a barbell if we were in kind of a strength program. What we also saw was that rates of gestational hypertension, high blood pressure, and preeclampsia were below national averages. Um, We didn't see that there were any increased risk of abortion, stillborn birth, high degrees of tearing, C-section rates of delivery, they were kind of in line with or slightly below what we see in the general population. 
And then, um, yeah, we kind of looked at pelvic floor dysfunction. I mentioned that we saw, we didn't see an increase, a very high risk or um, incidence of that heaviness, which is indicative of pelvic organ prolapse. Again, a lot of people thinking, don't do high impact during your pregnancy. You're going to cause prolapse or issues postpartum. So we didn't see that substantiated in our cross-sectional data. Our next step is to try and get perspective data taking so that we can get a bit of an increase in the level of evidence. But this at least gives us some preliminary evidence around safety or at least um, the lack of harm that is is shown like a kind of net neutral, I would say, if we're looking at like what this tells us. We're not saying that one is protective, but we're also saying that these, these things that we give advice from are not harmful, like we are saying that they are. And so that for me was a huge win because, you know, there is a lot of fear that individuals experience during pregnancy and postpartum. And I really feel like this is the time in a female's life where we start feeling like we're fragile. And, you know, I really want to go back against that message, not just for, you know, my moms, because moms require fitness because it's really hard being a mom and there's a lot of physical demands on you. Mm -hmm. But also like, you know, going to my geriatric side, if you feel at 30 that you're fragile, how are you going to feel at 60 when you're going Mm -hmm. through menopause and now you're Mm -hmm. in an estrogen low state and you don't have the same support around your pelvis? You know, there's so many things that we have to take this lifespan approach and recognize that you know, we have to be very mindful of the way that we are talking about this and, you know, creating fears that people feel like they can't move or move in the way that they want to may not be the best option. We want to give buoys and say, you know, if you're feeling these things, you're probably pushing it a little bit too hard. Um, But just like, you know, heart rate responses, we used to say, well, don't get your heart rate get over 140. Now we have research on high intensity interval training up to 90 to 95% of their heart rate apps during pregnancy. And showing no adverse events. And, you know, there's a lot of research that we could really dive into. But kind of last thing around the Valsalva piece, we now have two research studies that have shown the hemodynamic or the mom's heart rate and baby's heart rate response when they are holding their breath through exercise. And we haven't shown anything with baby. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about kind of the research um, in general around um, pregnancy, we always make sure that one baby is okay. And then we look at, you know, what the role is on different complications for mom. And we very rarely look at the pelvic floor. And that's kind of where I'm like, we still need to, we need to look at the pelvic floor too. So, you know, we have the kind of the check mark around fetal outcomes. We kind of have some of the check marks around mom outcomes. And now we're trying to look at where, um, where we go from the pelvic floor perspective. Mm-hmm. And so powerful to have that, because like you said, we all maybe seeing the community evolve and and continue to do CrossFit throughout their pregnancies. We all have this intuition that this is okay, but now having some evidence to back that up and say, look, you know, rates of complications are lower or the same as the general population, I think just gives everyone a little bit of an exhale, like, okay, and now we can keep digging in and finding some more information and getting more specific. And I love to, you also found that there was reduced rates of postpartum depression and anxiety in those who were doing weightlifting, which I think is really amazing because it's such a you know, such a a difficult time and can be really difficult for moms. And so knowing that that could be a little bit protective, I think was also awesome. 
Yeah. And I think one of the things too, one of the things that we, I couldn't really shake out was like, was it the resistance training in general, or was this a group of individuals who had a CrossFit community around them? Mm-hmm. Right. Like we can't really mm-hmm. like say, right. Because this is a group. If we look at potential confounders in the best way, this is a good, like potential good founder. Yeah. <laughs> is, you know, you have those people around you that are supporting you. Like how many CrossFit coaches are, you know, baby wearing or carrying little babies so that, you know, mom can continue working out. And one of the things that Alexis and I really strongly believe in is that we don't really believe in that six week, like don't do anything type of recommendation. We have some preliminary research looking at aerobic data that's showing that there isn't any increased risk of pelvic floor dysfunction for gradual return to exercise versus a blanket, don't do anything. And if I can get mom into her community, you know, 10 days postpartum, and it's not doing CrossFit classes, it's starting to do some gentle movement, but I can get her with her people, then it can make it so that it is a little less lonely. And maybe we do have that additional social protectiveness from perinatal mental health disorders, because you're right, that anxiety, that isolation, that panic, that OCD, that depression, like we talk about depression a lot, but there's so many other conditions that with that big hormonal fluctuation, we can see, you know, can we get that social support there early and, you know, give them again, those buoys of like, how do we get you to start moving in your gym so that you're with your people? And, and that can be so helpful. I love that. Such a great call out. And I think the other really cool thing that you found was that, you know, as expected, the moms who did pelvic floor training during their pregnancy had less symptoms in postpartum, which again, I guess we would all expect, but it's always good to see that play out in the data. And so kind of moving into thinking about women listening who maybe are pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant or postpartum. Um, what are some of the general guidelines that you give women? And now this is, as we know, based on like the data that's available, but also a lot of your clinical experience, what are the things that we can feel really confident telling women? In terms of like what type of exercise or ways that they need to change their exercise or? Yeah. Yeah. Just how to approach like, okay, I'm I'm doing regular CrossFit five days a week classes in my gym and now I'm pregnant. What do I need to be thinking about? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll just start with the first trimester and then I'll let Alexis kick off. So when we're thinking first trimester, a lot of people get that positive pregnancy test and they're like, oh my goodness, now what? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so in terms of like movement standards or things that you are doing in general in the first trimester, we're not really modifying that much. We are modifying around fatigue and we're modifying around nausea. And so when you think about like a really hard CrossFit workout, your body is pretty tired after you see all the the CrossFitters on the ground and, you know, you, you feel that fatigue for several hours to the rest of the day from having that good workout. I always tell moms that it's like five or 10 times worse when you're pregnant that post exercise fatigue. And so sometimes they'll dial back the intensity just because they have other things they need to do with their day. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so that kind of modifying that intensity around fatigue and managing kind of their day-to-day tasks are probably the the biggest things that we're talking about with respect to the first trimester. And then I'll kind of tag Alexis in on trimester two. Yeah. Well, to to add to trimester one, I'm I'm always telling my, my athletes and my clients, your resting heart rate is already elevated. Um, by 10, maybe 20 beats per minute at rest. 
So that means your warm up, you're going to feel even more fatigued. And during that workout, you're going to feel feel it even more. You know, you're going to be out of breath, you know, in relation to that. You've got so much more blood volume. Like there's a lot of changes that are going on internally that you can't see externally. And, you know, you, many people are, you know, choose not to share with anyone. And so they're kind of struggling with this, like, Oh, nobody knows why I'm scaling or like why I feel like I'm dying out there. I need to keep it up um, and do what I always do. That way nobody is suspecting me. And um, so I kind of just try to let people know, like, listen, like, like Christina said, you're, you're likely going to be a lot more fatigued. You're more fatigued starting out. You know, you're, you're going to feel that, that difference in your workout. And we all share, like in the second trimester. So some people can't go to the gym during that first trimester, whether that's the sickness or the fatigue, or maybe they're managing little ones and trying to manage the fatigue. Like so, so many people don't make it into the gym in that first trimester. So then they go in on the second trimester and do a workout. Now maybe their nausea is gone and they're like, okay, I'm going to do this whole fit pregnancy thing now. And then they start warming up and they feel that heart rate elevate so dramatically for the first time in three months. And they're like, oh no, I am so out of shape. (laughs) And I, again, remind those individuals, like you didn't lose all your fitness in this, you know, handful of weeks that you weren't in the gym. Like you're feeling that's pregnancy. That's what you're experiencing there. That's how I figured out I was pregnant with my daughter. My resting heart rate <laughs> went up and I was moving up an empty bar and I was like, this feels horrendous. And I took it <laughs> as positive. And so kind of moving into the second trimester in terms of like, when do we start removing exercise or when do we start changing things? This really is going to be individual and this is probably something that Alexis and I can self-admittedly say that we have changed the most in. Mm-hmm. Um, an example is that you see individuals who have doming or coning, which is kind of this tenting up across the six-pack line mm-hmm. where people say, well, if you're doming or coning, you immediately need to change your exercises. And it's telling you that you're being dysfunctional and you're going to have diastasis recti postpartum and all of these things. And we just don't have the research to back that up. (laughs) When we look at risk factors for what causes things like diastasis recti, which is this kind of elongation of the linea alba so that your six-pack muscles are sitting a little bit further apart. Um, What we see is genetics, obesity. If you have had multiple children before, those are kind of these, like if you have a connective tissue disorder, like Ehlers-Danlos, like those type of things tend to be the bigger risk factors And exercise during pregnancy has never come up as a risk factor that we have seen. If we've evaluated it, you know, like there's just, we don't have any, anything looking at that. But when we look at, say example, those who have diastasis recti and those that don't after baby weakness has been shown as the predominant risk factor or the difference, I should say, not the risk factor between those who have diastasis and those that don't. So those that have diastasis recti tend to be weaker in a variety of different core metrics than those that don't. And so we have been very intentional about continuing to train the core during pregnancy. And we tend to be less quick to remove exercises during pregnancy, like sit-ups, 
versus can we coach the sit up to minimize some of that coning? Like you are, if when you are 38 weeks pregnant, like you are going to be have doming every single time you sit up because baby needed to have some room. So like that linea alba had to extend in this beautiful mechanism that, you know, allowed you as that pregnant person to be getting up from a chair, you know, like, and, and baby has room. So those types of things, there isn't this like knee jerk reaction to remove things. You're going to have some people who feel really good doing sit-ups until delivery and other people that it causes belly button discomfort when they're, you know, 18 weeks pregnant. You're going to have some people who are going to feel really good running up until the day they deliver. And there's going to be people that after the first trimester, it just feels really bad on their pelvis. Like there's just going to be, and not even just between people, but between your own pregnancies, there's going to be those differences. And so we try and create this space where, you know, we have conversations about how this feels. We do some coaching around how it looks and can we kind of increase the amount of support that you feel with those movements so that you feel strong when you're doing them and then recognize that everyone's going to feel a little bit different about when they feel like they need to remove or modify exercises. So again, these blanket statements of when we need to remove things, it's just, it's not panning out when it comes to clinically treating in this patient population. I am a CrossFit trained like through and through, um, having done CrossFit for over a decade now and, um, loving the methodology, you know, mechanics, consistency, intensity, that absolutely applies in our pregnant population. And I think that that's something that a lot of coaches feel uncomfortable, maybe holding a pregnant person accountable to hitting the mechanics. Mm -hmm. And what we say is even more reason to hold them accountable to that. Now, maybe that means that they, you know, modify or scale um, accordingly, but let's let's help them hit those mechanics because that's going to wind up making them become better movers. And it's going to make that postpartum return just slightly easier that they've, they've been working on the skill acquisition again, even with a big bump. I think that's probably one of the things that I feel uh, pretty strongly about in in that movement, like let's stick to mechanics, consistency, intensity in pregnancy and in that postpartum return. And we're going to create resiliency in the body accordingly. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what I'm hearing is a lot of individualization, which I love and sticking to the basics, to the principles and not getting too caught up in dogma. Like even as you were saying earlier, Christina, about postpartum, maybe it doesn't have to be six weeks before you can step foot in the gym, but what are the other benefits and ways that you can move that are right for you and knowing that that's going to be probably different for every woman and knowing also that there are great resources out there like you both um, that are accessible, you know, even through telemedicine. And so these, these things are much more widely accessible. You're putting the information out there for people to learn, which I just think is amazing. So quick rapid round of three questions, which I normally ask at the end of the podcast. And then I want to hear people can learn more about what you're doing. So the three questions, first one is what are the three things you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? You want to go first? Sure. Number one, we put our phones in a cabinet Mm -hmm. um, an hour or so before we are like 
winding down um, and actually have like that wind down routine. And kind of in combo with that, I don't look at my phone in the morning until I've had my breakfast and kind of started off my day as my day. And then I can respond to what's on the phone. So that's been hugely impactful for my sleep and for my mental health. Um, and, and, you know, therefore for the physical health as well. It was kind of a long answer. I don't know if you want more, but <laughs> big one. I love that. You've got two more, <laughs> two more things. <laughs> so um, obviously uh, continuing to exercise. Um, but what we've, en- what we've enjoyed is getting out early in the morning and getting that sunlight first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm that's been really nice. And that, again, that works into our, our morning routine. Mm-hmm. Um, not looking at my phone before that, but going and getting the sunlight. And then third thing is cooking at home. Mm-hmm. We did a stint where we were eating out so much and everything, I just felt horrible. And now we're back to eating at home and I can just tell such a difference when we spend time cooking together with me me and my husband and we're eating healthy food and um, that just goes so far. I love that. I love all three of those. How about you, Christina? So um, I have two kids at home, so four and two. So there are many days where there are a lot of things that are outside of my control. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first thing is that we try to prioritize sleep as much as possible. So even in the newborn phases, like, you know, if my youngest went to bed at 7.30, I was going to bed at 7.32, knowing that the better I was sleeping, the more resilient that I felt that I could Mm -hmm. be. Um, Because, you know... I can't control if he's up every hour, but I can control when I go to sleep. (laughs) So um, that was something that I've been prioritizing. He's two and he was in my bed at 1am last night. So, you know, that it just (laughs) is what it is. Um, But we, we try to get that part. So this, the sleep within what is possible for me Mm -hmm. is number one. Number two was some of the reframe around what exercise looked like for me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've competed in, powerlifting and and Olympic weightlifting and CrossFit stuff across my pregnancies, postpartum, postpartum with both my kiddos. Um, But I recognize that there are seasons in my life that like right now, we just moved to a different country back from the US. We moved back to Canada. Mm. I finished my PhD. So exercise hasn't looked the same as doing competitive CrossFit programming. And Mm -hmm. there was a time where that for me would really spiral my stress response because Mm -hmm. that was something that I really enjoyed. And I always felt like I was losing that part of me. But this reframe around um, movement for health and then recognizing, like Alexa said, that my fitness isn't gone because I've had this period of time where I haven't hit as much exercise as my body is used to. So kind of reframing around exercise has been helpful, but still trying to prioritize movement so that I am exercising two to three times at least, but ideally four to five times per week so that I show up as the best parent I can be. And then the third one has been to try and really reflect on what are the things that spark joy in me um, so that I can continue to show up the greatest that I can for my family. And so for me, this might sound like the nerdiest thing ever, but I did a PhD for fun. I wasn't actually trying to be a prof. And I started this whole <laughs> other research area in high load resistance training as for, in pregnancy as I, you know, this research side hustle, I always call it where, you know, it wasn't part of my PhD. It was a completely different area, but it was something that sparked joy in me. And so that 
having that component of my life, even though it's not, you know, I work primarily with the Institute of Clinical Excellence. This isn't, that isn't my main job, but it's something in me that gives me a lot of joy. And um, when I'm able to kind of have that part of myself filled up, then I feel like I just show up as a better parent and spouse and friend and brother or sister and for my brother and all those things. So yeah, those are my three. I love that. I love that. So the second question is, what is one thing that you don't do a good job of or that you think would have a big impact on your health you're working on or something that you think you could improve? Um, Stress. 100. (laughs) Yeah, I think the work with life balance and the saying yes to too many things so that I stress myself out on on purpose, it seems like. I think that's always the answer. Yes. For me, is eating enough food. Um, mm. I under fuel and yes. working on fueling appropriately. I love that. That's a, such a big one. I'm glad you called that out because that's such a big one for so many people and so counterintuitive for a lot of people too. Um, all right. Last question is: What does a healthy life look like to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, a healthy life is when I have the amount of fitness and the amount of time that I want to show up the best way I can for my mm-hmm. kids. Mm. Love that. Yeah. I think health is um, smiling and laughing and being surrounded by people that you love and doing things that you love, but also getting through those hard things mm-hmm. with those individuals and kind of riding that journey together. I love that. I love that. Well, Thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been amazing. And you are both just such a wealth of information and resources. So where can people learn more from you? Um, We already talked about ICE a little bit, but specifically for the two of you. Yeah, so you can probably find us on Instagram would be where we are the most. Um, so I am on Christina underscore Previt. And then um, I have an online company that focuses on kind of programming. So you can find that at the Barbell Mamas that does public health considerations for different types of programs. Love that. And then I'm on Instagram at Alexis Morgan PT. And then um, also follow us on ICE at, at ICE Physio. Perfect. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes so people can find them. And thank you guys again for doing what you're doing, doing this hard work and you know, getting the data we need, bringing that information to clinicians and to people who, you know, love to exercise and lift weights and want to continue doing it in a way that's really healthy. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.